500 years ago he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck and upon the skull of the man who killed his dad he said i'm mad i must eradicate piracy injustice and cruelty and all my sons will follow me so evil doers will believe that this man cannot die the phantom the ghost who walks the enemies beware the phantom's always there but you won't find the phantom he finds G'day everybody, for those who have come in late, you're listening to X-Band The Phantom Podcast. This is another podcast from our summer range for the summer of 2019 and 2020. Uh, today, basically I'm just introducing uh, just introducing a panel that was recorded from the September 2019 Mid-Atlantic uh, Convention, which was held in Maryland in the USA. Uh, the panel was between... Everyone's friend, Pete Claus, friend of the Phantom, uh, Keith Williams, the ex-news newspaper artist, as well as longtime Phantom fan and Pete's friend, uh, Spike Barkin. It's the first time majority of us have probably heard from Spike, so it's good to hear someone fresh, someone new. Um, I won't talk for too long, but basically... Uh, they, the podcast, as you will see, is probably about three quarters of an hour, if that. Uh, Pete goes over the legacy of the Phantom. He talks about his visit to Australia and some other um, uh, stories with uh, Phantom fans from around the world. Um, talks about the legacy of the Phantom, like with the colour, the Lee Fawkes uh, reaction with the colour from around the world of the costume. Uh, there's some questions from the crowd. And then Keith Williams also does a... Um, a, an inking example of the Phantom. So there's like a pre-sketch in pencils and then he actually inks it and he goes over a little bit of the techniques and then there's some questions about the techniques and stuff like that as well. So it's it's a very informative uh, panel. If you're a professor in Phantom Lology, you probably won't learn anything new but for a lot of fans including even myself I learned something and I enjoyed it uh, a huge shout out to um, Pete and also Spike for making this video available for everyone uh, including us um, they you know sent over the video and stuff like that as well so a huge shout out to them uh, greatly appreciated but enough waffling from me uh, let's go straight to Pete and then at the end we'll quickly wrap up good morning everyone Morning. Morning. Um, you call me Pistol Pete from the old basketball days when I could run. Uh, but I got interested in the Phantom when I was four years old. Newspaper would come, News American and Sun, and uh, here was this purple character, tight-fitting clothes, muscular, with a white horse, and a wolf running through the jungle. What kid would not like that? with a skull cave, and I was just fascinated. And I wanted to learn to read. I tried to read it, my mother would help me, and it got to the point, she said, well, I'm busy. We had six kids in our family. She said, you try, but you have to try hard because you're gonna learn to read that way by reading that comic book, and I did. And that started my fascination with the Phantom. Um, the Phantom was introduced in 1936, created by Lee Falk. Lee Falk's real name was Lee Grossman. He lived in St. Louis, Missouri, born in 1911. And um, 
His father died when he was very young. His stepfather, whose middle name was Falk, uh, actually raised him. He loved that name. So when he started writing, he took the last name of Falk. And whenever you see the thing in the paper, it'll say, Lee Falk, by Keith Williams, or Lee Falk, Raymore, whoever the artist would be at the time. But anyway, uh, Lee's main idea, he was very well read. He read all of the um, classics, Robin Hood, El Cid, and he got all his ideas from these classic uh, books. Um, in 1934, he was about 22 years old or so, he got this idea for a character called Mandrake the Magician. And um, I asked Lee, I had dinner with him, and I said, Lee, how'd you get your idea for Mandrake? And he said, well, he said, in St. Louis at the time, great um, magicians would come to town and all the kids would run and said, uh, the great Thurston and whoever would come, uh, Blackstone, and he said, I was fascinated. And I got this idea for this character who could make illusions. And I just thought it'd be great for a story. Well, he wrote to King Features and presented the story, and he tried to make it like he was a world traveler. He'd never traveled outside of Missouri, but he made them think that, and he did get the, uh, get the job as a, the writer of Mandrake. Well, two years later, he had this other idea, The Phantom. Originally, he was going to call it the Gray Ghost, sort of like mist in and out, almost like the shadow. But he thought that would not be a good idea because he thought it would have to have some color to it, especially in the comic strip. So he mixed that idea, and um, at first, he was going to be like Batman. It was going to have, it was going to be a rich playboy having a hideout somewhere in New York. And he didn't like that idea. And he came up with the great idea of the Phantom and Ben Gower and Skull Cave, saved by the Bandar Pygmies. And the storyline goes that his father was uh, Christopher Columbus's cabin boy. And later on became the captain of his own merchant vessel. And his son, the first family, was a young boy then, and while sailing in India, near India, he's attacked by the same Brotherhood pirates, nemesis of the Seven Seas. And there, they throw him overboard, and he sees a pirate kill the father. So he's washed on shore, half dead, and the Bandar tribe, a Pygmy tribe, uh, in their culture, said they're Sailor will come from the sea. So they nursed the family back to health and they had an image of their, their God, what their savior, and it was the family's constant. And that's how all that began. Um, <clears throat> so he's walking along and he sees a body washed up on shore and it's a pirate to kill his father wearing his father's clothes. So over time, of course, all the flesh deteriorates and all the flesh is a skull. So he picked up that skull and he swore that he and his son and their son, and the son after that, would follow the code of the family to fight piracy, greed, cruelty, and all its forms. And so started the legend. He wore the costume. When he would die, his next son would wear it. 
said it's went over for 400 years and they called on the goose to wash. So if you see that in the script, that's where that came from. But anyway, um, getting back to uh, Lee Falk a little, when Lee wanted to become a playwright, and he did write a lot of plays, really were in his uh, lifetime, 400 plays, and he had a lot of summer theaters, mainly in um, New York area and uh, Cape Cod. And he worked with people like Charlton Heston in the summer, Chico Marx, Probably these great names, so he loved theater and he always wanted to be a writer. Little did he know that he made all his money in comments and everybody knew him. And uh, Spike asked me to touch on a little bit on his appeal internationally. Well, in 1936, Italy wrote to King Features and said, We'd like to produce a comic book. Up to that time, the film was only in the comic strip. So they wanted to produce a comic book, uh, uh, The Phantom. So I was talking to Lee and I said, well, in Italy his costume is red. Here it's purple, what, what's going on? He said, well, we sent the original script then over to Italy so they could shoot them for their, for their comic book. And there was no color guide in those days. So they picked a color that they looked good in. Of course, <laughs> If you went to jump on a red suit, you'd probably get shot right away. <laughs> and then um, he's also read in France, and they call him Le Fenton. Uh, in Italy, he's um, Lumo Mascarado, man with the mask. Um, in Spain, he's said Hombre Mascarado. Uh, in Sweden, he's Fantomen. In um, Finland, um, Not but anyway, uh, Phantom and Phantom Net, and uh, in uh, Mexico, Elephantasma. But anyway, I wanted to go over to Australia because it's very popular in Australia to find out why it was so popular there. Well, the comic book was printed from in Australia from 1949. It's still be printed, being printed now. I think it's up to like 1,380 different issues. And um, what happened over there, when they collected their comic books, the father would give them to the son. It was like the Phantom handing down his cow. And um, everybody knows the Phantom over there. I'm trying to get my good friend Keith to go over and speak to their uh, Phantom Club, which they call the Lee Falk Memorial Bengali Club for when Lee Falk died in 1998. But um, everybody over there, when you go in Australia, knows a family that goes to walks. They even have guys that dress up and walk around. It's strange, but neat. Um, in Sweden, not as much. He's very popular in Sweden where they call him Fantomen. And uh, he has a different color there. He's more like a dark blue, medium to dark blue. And it just had to do with the colors they used when they originally printed the comic book. But I just found it fascinating to see all these different colors of the Phantom. Um, when uh, the uh, comic strips were most popular at their height, um, the Phantom was read by 100 million people a day. 500,000 different newspapers. 
and of course, you know, the advent of uh, computers, people just read the news that way, so as you know, papers are going down. But they still, it still has a strong following. Some uh, cities have been printed in color, even during the week, some places in New York. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I But I just wanted to add, as far as the foreign uh, popularity of the Phantom, in the 1960s, the first time I went to Europe, uh, I was astounded to see all of these comic books about the Phantom and Mandrake, but mainly the Phantom in France, in Italy, in Sweden, and people were just in love with this character. And the international love for the Phantom was amazing to me. And in France and in Italy, they were reprinting in album form the Phantom strips from the very beginning, which was not being done in the United States. And until Dan Herman from Hermes Press decided that he would get into publishing and he loved the Phantom. And I asked him why he picked the Phantom. And he said, this is a, a, a character that was mysterious, it was long lasting, it was innovative, um, and it inspired a lot of other costume characters in, in comic strips and comic books uh, here in the United States. And he said he thought it was important to preserve that particular strip. And so he started publishing the Phantom Dailies and Sundays right from the beginning. And those, those are available if you uh, contact Hermes Press. Uh, you can see that they, on their website, they do a lot of reprints of other uh, comic books and some strips, but mainly the Phantom. And um, it's, it's really interesting. It's got an interesting history along with the actual uh, reproduction of the strips from the very beginning. And Dan said that he wanted to do that throughout the complete strip. So he's had to wait a couple of years. He's just getting into the Lee Falk era and eventually <laughs> to Keith Williams. <laughs> Keith, I wanted to ask, how did you get involved in doing comics in, in the first place? Well, um, actually, uh, since high school, I was like really interested in uh, drawing. Before that, I was collecting comics. Uh, a few friends of mine, you know, we would get together and uh, just make our own comic books. Uh, and it just became something that uh, I got really interested in. Uh, in my school, my high school, South Shore, I um, did the uh, yearbook uh, cover. Uh, and when, you know, I, get, I got a lot of people that uh, gave me a lot of praise for it and it felt good, you know, and I, you know, I felt like I, I could do more, so I uh, did school shows, did, did painting and stuff like that uh, at, at high school. Went to um, School of Visual Arts uh, in New York uh, and, and studied art with uh, Will Eisner, uh, who did The Spirit. Uh, and, uh, during, and after uh, high school, I started uh, getting into, trying to get into uh, the comic book uh, companies, DC and Marvel, I would go and go for interviews, meet people like Jim Shooter and John O'Meter and uh, people like that. And uh, finally, like after a few years of uh, trying to do that, I actually got into it by uh, meeting uh, Don Perlin, who was an artist at uh, Marvel Comics, and he did Werewolf by Night and a few other different things. Uh, and uh, I started out as a background artist. 
uh, doing uh, inking for um, other inkers. Uh, so that, that went on for a little while. I worked for uh, people like Joe Sennett and John Byrne uh, up at Marvel and uh, finally promoted myself to, to being an inker myself. Uh, and uh, worked on uh, different books like uh, Web of Spider-Man, uh, The Avengers, uh, She-Hulk, uh, lots, uh, lots of different books. Um, Danny Fingerhoff came to me one day and asked me if I was interested in possibly doing a comic strip. I said, okay, that's interesting. I've never done a comic strip before. Uh, he told me that it was uh, for the Phantom and uh, and if I'd like, I can go and uh, meet Jay Kennedy, who was uh, at King Futures at the time, running the um, editorial part of uh, the comic strips. So I went, met him, showed him uh, what, I've, what I've done, and uh, he said that he liked what I was doing, but that I'd have to go and see Lee Falk to make sure that, you know, like, uh, that, that, that he would like it, and so that I can hopefully get the job. So I actually, uh, he, he gave me the address to Lee Falk, <laughs> who uh, lived across the street from uh, Hayden Planetarium, which was absolutely amazing. Uh, went, went to his uh, building, went up an elevator that I think stopped at, I think that's like the sixth floor, and it was like a private elevator so that when, you, when it opened up, you walk into this little alcove and that was Lee Fork's house. That, that was it, you know, it was, he had his own private elevator. <laughs> So I uh, went in and, and met him, was inside his uh, living room, and we talked for a while. He asked me what, I've, what I did in the past, and I told him that I did Spider-Man. He says, oh, I don't like spiders, I have a phobia. And I said, oh, I lost a job. <laughs> so, um, but unfortunately, that, like, uh, he did like what I was doing, and uh, he thought he'd try me out for you know, like a few you know, like, uh, strips, and, uh, the rest was history. Uh, I worked on uh, The Phantom from 1995 to 2005. Um, yeah, and uh, with George Olson, who was the penciler of, uh, of, of the strip. And I would be doing the inking. And then after a while, I did the lettering also. Mill Snappin was the uh, letterer on the strip. And uh, he died um, about maybe two years that I was into the strip. And then I took, I took that job over also. You know, good. If you saw the letter in there, that was that was me too. <laughs> yeah. So, did did you get instruction as far as how to position the phantom, or how how to make him look, or? Cy, so um, I, I saw Cy Barry's artwork, which was absolutely amazing, um, and I tried to get as close to him as possible because I didn't want him to kill me. <laughs> I didn't want to ruin the strip, uh, so that's that. That was like basically my mandate. Uh, they didn't really tell me um, anything to make it look, you know, to keep making it look like that. I just decided on my own to, you know, like uh, make sure that it looked as much as the way George did it, which sort of like was the way that Cy did it. And I just tried to carry carry on from there. And were you involved with the storylines that Lee tell you? What he wanted the story to be. Lee told me nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Lee did his. Lee, Lee did all the writing. If it, if it wasn't uh, in New York, it was in it was in Toro, where, where he would go during the summer, and he'd be working there also. And uh, he would just send uh, the scripts to George, 
who was uh, down in Florida at the time, I believe. And uh, then when George was finished, he would send the uh, the uh, um, strips up to me, and I would ink them, and then I would either walk over, you know, I like, got uh, King Features, or uh, I would uh, mail them out. But mostly, mostly I would go up to the offices, which was usually cool. <laughs> I just like to mention that Lee Thorpe wrote all these stories, and even on his deathbed, he was writing the last story, and he just didn't have the strength. Died of heart failure, but um, his wife took over. She was a in the theater and she helped them at, at the very last story. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah and then Fred Fredericks uh, started writing yeah. some of the stories. And did you work with Fred also? No, no, I've only spoke, spoken to Fred, nice guy, but no. He, he did the Sundays, I did the dailies. So could you show us exactly how you ink? <laughs> I, I, will, I will do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna come and watch. <laughs> First time I've ever done this one. <laughs> I'm usually in my hole. There's nobody else around, and I'm like a hermit <laughs> working on this stuff. So this is uh, this is what I usually end up getting: a uh, pencil sketch of uh, the character of the character. You know, again, there's usually like a lot of other stuff going on too, like trucks and buildings and things. But this. I did really quick, <laughs> hopefully. So what, what I would usually use is a corporal pen or um, a Winsor Newton brush uh, to, uh, to ink over um, the, the figure work. Uh, right now I'm gonna be using a marker, Fable Castell, hopefully it'll work. Find out in a few seconds. <laughs> so I just try and follow the outline, and sometimes there's a lot of lines on the, the page, so I have to like pick them when, when, it's, uh, when it's sketched out. Do you have to make it a certain thickness in order for it to transfer to the yes. panel? Yes, it can be too thin, uh, especially back when I first started, because uh, right back then the printing wasn't as well you know, put together as it is now. Now you can do very tiny lines, and they'll pick it right up. But yeah, there's usually like uh, thick and thin lines. Like you would usually make the lines heavier underneath. And lines going down usually be a little thinner. It's very interesting. I'm <laughs> sorry for blocking anybody. George Olson would draw the uh, outline and send those pencils to Keith, and then Keith would ink them. And I'd usually have a certain amount of time to be able to do it. Uh, I'd always have deadlines. <laughs> and the deadlines, uh, some, uh, the moment I get it, I have to work on it. So I was always working. You know, I don't think I actually took a vacation. Do you prefer a brush over a marker? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, just dip it into the ink and then uh, then work with it. Yeah, I, I I taught myself 
how to do that. So you do all this by hand, you don't use a computer at all for this? No, I don't. Um, I can now, though. Uh, but when we first started doing this, yeah, it, it, um, you can use uh, tablets now. Uh, they have computer tablets that you can use. Uh -huh. Which do you prefer? Paper. <laughs> Why don't write on the paper? Because it's old school. This is, that's, that's, that's what I like. Plus, um, it's, it's on something that you could show to people, and if you wanted to sell it, you, you could sell it. Uh, whereas, you know, like uh, the artwork that's in the computers, you can print it out and it'll be a print, but it wouldn't be the original artwork. Do the pencil lines not show up in the printing? They don't, uh, because I end up erasing them. I have to erase ah. them. Yeah, so, so what you're actually seeing at the end is what, what, I'm, what I'm doing. So but after you're done with the inking, you, with that part of the I would erase it. Yeah, you would erase it. Sometimes they would use uh, blue pencil, so uh, yeah. you can go over that and you don't have to erase yeah. it because it, you know, like, uh, the photograph, when you photograph it, the blue disappears. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, when, when you're an inker, it, so, sometimes the pencil that you're working on, they may not. Sometimes you need to fix certain things. You know, they they may be in a hurry also, and you know, like they're trying to get their stuff done. So something might be missing, or something might have been drawn wrong. So we have to make sure that everything is right. So that's our that's our job to fix everything. I, I worked. Uh, with John Romita um, at Marvel as a Romita Raider. And a Raider is a person that went in and did correct art corrections. So, you know, like if there was a problem with a person's face or, you know, like buildings, whatever it is, we would have to go in there and fix it. Beyond fixing it, did you ever do anything to enhance it that you just felt really should do that wasn't in there, that you knew wasn't quite in line with what they wanted? And did they come back and say, uh, uh, or say yes? Sometimes, sometimes we would get pencils that would get upset if we, you know, like we added a certain thing or some, some extra shading in certain areas. But it's like, sometimes, uh, if they said it was like a night scene and it didn't look like a night scene, you would put in like a zip or something like that, or you would put in cross hatching or, you know, like something, something like that to, to make it look like night. The pencils don't usually get too upset. And, you know, again, and I try to follow what they, what, what they do mostly. You know, because it's, you know, like it's their artwork. <laughs> like I'm just finishing it. Yes. In the pre-computer age, living in New York, do you physically carry your finished drawings down to the uh, comic office, and people living outside of New York City, they, they mail them in? They would mail them in. Yeah, I, I, I was um, either in Brooklyn or I was in, um, in, in the city when I, where I was living for a while, and uh, I would just walk over to. Uh, 28th Street and Park Avenue, that's where Marvel was. And, uh, drop, drop the stuff off there, hang out for a while, try and get more work, stuff like that. <laughs> but yeah, it was always fun going up to the offices. It was, uh, especially back then, it was more like a mom and pop kind of like place. And the Marvel bullpen was really like a crazy place to be in. You know, like it, was, it was a lot of fun. Did you ever do motion picture uh, artistry? No, no. Because I saw the method and it's 
they had to make it move and I don't know if they ever did that. Had to make it move? Well, they, well of course. Oh, you mean, you mean uh, uh, animation? Yeah, animation. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I've never done animation. I, I would love, I, I would have loved to, but I, I never, you know, like I got into this and it never... crazy by the end? <laughs> Probably, you know, like they, they, they would. I, I think they usually have more than like just one person doing the, uh, doing the art. You know, like uh, just like now with, with computer um, art, they have to have a whole mess of people doing rendering. Every shadow, every you know, like move, yeah. and then that takes forever too. You know, All so. All the cameras for multiple cells. Right. <laughs> a team. Well, for animation, would be a team of people. Yeah. For us, it was. I was the anchor, and if I was either too slow and not getting it done on time, they would find somebody else to help finish it off. Okay, they, they, <laughs> they wouldn't wait for you. Uh, and I, I was an assistant editor for a while also, and I had to be in that part. They, they would find you, right, if the script wasn't on time? Oh, they, find they could find you, yeah, yeah, because uh, it's supposed to go to the printers at a certain time, and you know, the printing, I, I think the printers are set for that certain time to get that thing done, and if it's not, and if you gotta go and send it in, and they gotta rush, then I'm sure they have to, uh, King Features would have to pay something, you know, like extra penalty-wise. Just, just getting back to the atmosphere of what it was like, I, I never visited Marvel Comics, but I did visit King Features in the 50s when I was uh, 10 years old, and my dad took me there, and I remember just being floored by walking up into this large room there's George McManus doing James and Maggie. There were all these different artists, one right after another, at their own drawing board, doing their strips. And it was just, it, it was amazing. It was like walking into some kind of fantasy land. A lot of the artists would do it in their own studios and mail, mail it in. But in the early 50s, I think a lot of the artists went down to King Features and actually they had their own space and their own drawing boards and, and did the uh, strips there. Marvel, they do that too. Uh, Marvel in DC. They'd have rooms that you can go into and you can work during the day. Uh, but, but mostly we would be at home. But yeah, there would be a lot of, the, uh, a lot of guys would come in to finish off work and sometimes we would be late on certain books and we'd be there until like maybe two o'clock in the morning in the offices just trying to finish up. So you can see that the Phantom is just coming alive uh, thanks to <laughs> Keith's thinking. Hey Keith, while you're uh, working on that, I just want to mention to the people that are here, Keith has a table inside done some beautiful prints of the film. So you should see that it takes place, take something out. Yeah, Keith will be here all day today and tomorrow, and, and the prints are quite remarkable. Um, so I urge you to go downstairs and uh, check out uh, his prints. They're, they're available, and uh, I'm sure Keith would be happy to do commission work also. Uh, and aside from the Phantom, there's all other kinds of comic strip characters that he's worked on, and uh, it's really quite beautiful. So Pete, do you want to come back up and, while well, Keith is finishing, um, talk a little bit about the Friends of the Phantom and uh, how, 
um, the amazing thing about the Phantom is that so many people are just die-hard Phantom fans. Explain that. Why is that? I mentioned before uh, my involvement with the Phantom, how I got interested. Well, when I had my uh, son, his firstborn, I wanted to give him something back from my childhood, which was the Phantom. So I started collecting the comic books. But I wanted more. I wanted to meet the creator, Lee Falk. Well, I was reading a newspaper and he was doing a show in New York, actually panel sort of like this, probably in 1990. And I uh, went to meet him, but I just didn't want to go and say, hi, I'm Pete, you know, from Baltimore. I got a group of other Phantom collectors and we started a little group called the Friends of the Phantom. There's only a few people at the time, but we got together and we had a very nice plaque made that said to leave for, uh, for um, a Lifetime Achievement Award, you know, for his uh, work in the comic industry. And um, Lee was gracious. Uh, after he finished the panel, he allowed me to sit with him as he signed for two or three hours. And what I liked about Lee is we were sitting at a table like this, and somebody come to get a book signed up. He wouldn't just take it and sign it. Say, hi, what's your name? Where are you from? You know, and he, he would always have a story. When I told him I was from Baltimore, he told me he worked for the News American for a while, which I didn't know. So um, I had another friend, unfortunately he passed away, a good friend of Keith as well, Ed Rhodes. He and I are pictured in the strip done by Grand Mullen. Uh, and Ed was very good with the computer. He said, people let's put out a newsletter, Friends of the Family. So it was all about meeting the artists like Keith or Cy Berry or Grand Mullen or any of the artists that did the Phantom or writers and then put it in, you know, sort of a little letter form. Well, it became very popular, extremely popular in Australia and uh, Sweden, because of two big countries that the family uh, <coughs> appears in. And um, it just grew and grew, and we got to meet so many people. I'll tell you one quick story. I wrote to a guy in New Zealand, kind of John Bedoni, and I was sending him comics. He was sending me comics from New Zealand. So I taught school in the inner city of Baltimore for 38 years. And uh, he wanted me to come to New Zealand, and I said, no way that I can do it right now. Wait till I retire. When I retired in 2007, he treated me and my wife for three weeks to Australia and New Zealand. It was unbelievable. And then the following year, he took us to Sweden. That's how I got to go and see all this stuff. And, my wife and his wife, they went around and they went to see in Australia things like the Australian Zoo where the crocodile hunter has his big zoo. John and I did phantomizing over the whole thing. <laughs> it was really great. But uh, the Friends of the Phantom uh, is not being printed now. Like I said, Ed passed away. But we do have some of the newsletters that are great because we interviewed Keith, we interviewed uh, Cyberry, Fred Frederick, even some of the artists in Europe, Romano Feldman, Hans Mundel in Sweden. And these guys are amazing. They really are. And we have examples of their work. And 
talks about what medium they use. So it was really a worthwhile endeavor. We didn't do it to make money. We did it for the love of the character, namely. Actually cost us us money to do it, but I would go there work out a hundred times. That was my involvement with the uh, friends of the family. Great. Keith, yes. can you describe a typical day and how, how you go about creating the comic book art and also the comic strip art and what the difference is between doing a comic book and doing a comic strip as far as your workload goes? Well, um, usually try to get up early, <laughs> early at around maybe maybe six thirty, seven o'clock. Um, get myself some tea, <laughs> and then uh, just start uh, working on the uh, on the uh, whatever I was doing, either the strip or a comic book. Um, I I could sometimes like miss lunch because I'm working so hard on stuff. I kind of like let the day go by and that's bad <laughs> but but um yeah I, and i would usually stop working it all depends on what i was doing because some books uh, the deadlines were so tight i could go on until like maybe one two in the morning trying to uh finish a certain number of page, uh, pages uh, i would try to get at least two pages of inking done a day, sometimes would end up being three or four, if I if, if it's a really tight deadline, and uh, I, I would be up until the next morning uh, working. I have a question, Keith, about that. Um, it's a different type deadline with comic books. I know it's a comic strip, because yeah. comic strips coming out, and you need to be two weeks ahead of time at least, <laughs> if you can. <laughs> Lee Falk was notoriously late for a strip which put the, made them burn the midnight oil. Yeah, yes. That happened all. Yes, yes, and it's, um, and it's, the strip comes out every week as opposed to a, a comic book which comes out every month. So you have to, you have to really uh, hustle. Uh, and I was doing both at the same time for a while. And weathering. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I didn't get to see my family too much. <laughs> I was there, but I wasn't there. It's one of those kind of things, but uh, I, uh, I, I would have never changed anything. It was it's, it was it was a fantastic uh, period of time for me. You know, I never thought I'd be doing comic books and comic strips at the same time, much less uh, doing the Phantom, you know, I, which I've only heard of before that from uh, Jules Pfeiffer uh, book on comic book superheroes, and I think Steranko's History of Comics too. You know, like that's the only way I. Knew the Phantom at the time, um, so I, and and to be you know like on a character that was like the first to wear the, you know the outfit that all the other superhero characters are wearing, first one to have the, the whites of his you know like the, his eyes whited out. I mean, it was, so I, I feel very fortunate. Um, Spark, let me add a little bit, Keith, or uh, uh, spark something in my mind. The Phantom has the white in the eyes, and I asked Lee Falk about that. And he claimed it came from Greek mythology, where you don't see the eyes and it adds to the mystery. So he thought that was a look that he wanted. And uh, by the way, the way the Phantom got his costume, um, we interviewed um, the first artist, his name was Ray Moore. He was from St. Louis as well. He was an understudy to Phil Davis, who was an artist of Mandrake. And then he had too much to do on the Mandrake, 
So Rentmore cut the job. So Lee called them together and they went into a, a hotel room that was Lee Falk, the writer, Raymore, the upcoming artist, and a couple more guys, and Lee told them I wanted them to look sort of like the guy that would cut off the head, the, you know, with the hood and the whole thing. And that's what they came up with, and that's how they designed that costume. So it was quite interesting. Um, Raymore's wife was 100 years old when we interviewed her, but very clear of mind. It was really interesting. And I, when I interviewed Lee, I asked him about the color purple because just was curious. And, and he said it was news to him. He said he just sent in the strip and they colored it. And he said at first he couldn't figure out what they were doing because he thought it should have been green if he's in, if he's in the jungle, that would be a better costume. But they did the, the anchor of the people in, in the um, in the color printing decided on purple, and there was something about that color. I remember that would be the first comic I would go to in the comic section because of that color. And I still it still burns in my mind the exact shade of purple, and it just it just worked. But and, and also with what um, Pete was saying about uh, the red, Lee again was surprised when it turned out to be red, but it was just that they had a lot of red ink, and the <laughs> Italians thought, well, they used the red ink. Right, they just wanted, you know, to be colorful. Right. So one uniting thing about the people that I've interviewed that are connected with the Phantom, Lee Falk, Cy Berry, Fred Fredericks, and Keith, they're all super nice, nice people. Wonderful, amazing. So thank you for showing people how the inking works, and, and thank you for the history lesson. Are there any questions? Yep. I have a question about the inking. You mentioned before that there was someone else did the background inking. Yes. Does that mean in a picture like this that they would do the moon and the foliage and all that other stuff? Right. That, right. And they do that first? No, actually, actually, it's all it's all done by the penciler. The penciler does ah. the foregrounds in the backgrounds. What what happens is that the inker, if he's in a rush, he would just do the figure work, and ah. then he would hire somebody like me at the time to do everything else. Right. So I, I I would be doing the moon, the stuff, you know, okay. the buildings, okay. the cars. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I, I accidentally poured ink over Aunt May's face in a It's a horrifying experience. So, but but there, there are different ways of fixing something like that. If it isn't too bad of a mess, you can always, we have a thing called whiteout that, that we can use to uh, take, take that away and then just go over that. Or there's also, um, sometimes they would have to actually redraw the face and then put it on like a kind of like a rubber cement thing. And, Stick it right on the spot where the where the mess was. And, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I, I, I had to fix things like that. So, yeah. Who were your influences when you first started doing artwork? Who were? Can you say who uh, were your influences? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, Eisner, um, Neil Adams, DiGiordano. Um, I mean, a lot of Irv Novick. Um, Joe Giella, all, all the guys that I was reading at the time, you know, like when I was a kid, 
uh, were, were my influences. And um, with, with inking also, I, like I said, uh, Dick J. Daniel, Terry Austin, uh, Terry Austin was another you know, great inker. There's a lot of, uh, Jim Stranko, <laughs> Jack Kirby, of course. So, so yeah, John was seven, oh my gosh. Most of the comic book artists, were there any other artists? Okay, uh, like like Da Vinci and, uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 you know, Rembrandt. I love, I love the docs. I, I, I love that. You're like, yeah, well, you did that. Um, there was a lot of um, different uh, painters and uh, that, I, that I don't all totally know the names of, but that I love looking at. <laughs> Going to museums and things. When, when you took the course from Will Eisner, what kind of teacher was he? He was great. He was he was sort of like kind of like a dad <laughs> in, in kind of a way, uh, and uh, he, he was very patient with us. Uh, and we would show him our artwork, and he would look at it, and then he would take out a giant uh, piece of lead, and he would draw right over our artwork, which drove us all crazy. <laughs> So, you know, like we, we actually went and bought him uh, a tracing pad. <laughs> so, we're over it that way. I don't know, we were really touchy back then. You know, like now I wouldn't mind, you know, but, but back then I was like, hey, you know, like, I, mean, I worked on this stuff. <laughs> so, but, but he was, uh, and, you know, like he was always asking us what was new, what was going on, you know, like out there in the comic book world. But we always knew, sort of like in the back of our minds, that he already knew what was going on. He just wanted to hear us talk about it, too. We'd have, we'd have a lot of discussions about what was going on at the time. But he's, he's a great guy. How many people were in the class? Might have been uh, 15, 15 people in the class. Yeah, it was a small class. People in the And was he approachable? Yes, he was. As a matter of fact, um, when I got offered the job uh, to do the Phantom, I called him up uh, and then visited him at uh, Visual Arts. We went out to lunch together, and you know, like I had a talk with him about it. And I said, I'm still working at Marvel, but you know, like, I'm really interested in doing this. You know, should I? You know, I said, you know, if you have the time, and you feel like you, you, know, you really want to, you should. I took his advice. It's good to talk to him. Yep. When I, when I was reading The Phantom in the late 50s as a kid, I don't remember him being quite as muscular as he is now. I can answer that. <laughs> Ray Moore, who was the first fan Mars, had an understudy by the name of Wilson McCoy, lived in Chicago. And um, <clears throat> Ray Moore got hurt in the war, and I think caused him to drink, so his hand wasn't so steady. So Wilson McCoy took over the strip in the 40s. Had a huge workload to get out because he was doing dailies and Sundays. His work was being rushed. So that was one of the reasons uh, that he became, like you said, not muscular. And that was in the 50s, like you said. And then <clears throat> 1960, Wilson McCoy died of a heart attack suddenly. And they had Bill Ignanti, who was another artist. He was a courtroom artist for. Um, Shurhan, Shurhan, during that, remember he said the Portland artist wouldn't let the cameras in, and, um, uh, help your sculptor, help me. Charles Manson. Oh, Charles Manson. Charles, yeah, Charles Manson. And so he had a quite a uh, background, but he was an interim 
family or artist for one story and leave it in Michael because he put eyes in some of the phantom things and he also did the ear balls that leave it in Mike. So Lee was looking around and they decided on Seymour Barry, Cy Barry, who I think maybe the case might agree might be the best oh, yeah. phantom artist. And the reason I can say that is I look around at all the European artists. They all try to emulate what Cy did, the way he looked, the way he drew Diane Palmer, the love interest, the way he drew the, the wolf, the way they drew the horse, the other characters were all created by Cy. And they're, and they're trying to emulate that. And uh, Cy liked to make them muscular, but not overly so, you know. Some, some artists uh, actually put too many muscles in the phantom. And I know in particular in Australia, they don't like that. You know, so there was a fine medium between what you knew in the 50s and, you know, what Cy did and what some others tried to do. With Cy's uh, style, when he was asked to take over the Phantom, he sent in some strips in his style and they said, please make it more like Wilson McCoy and then gradually move into your style because they didn't want people to be jarred as far as when they would read the strip. So, so I had to do over all those strips in, in a Wilson McCoy style and gradually he worked into his own style. He told me, he said, Pete, I can't draw like him. He's a real one, you know. That was quite interesting, too, to see how he gradually came back to the end zone. But because of that, he, I remember him telling me that all the newspapers gained in popularity in the comic strips during his era. That was like the height of it. So it was around maybe 60, 60 through maybe 70 was the height of all the uh, popularity of a lot of characters. So as you know, they took the Phantom out of the Baltimore papers, I guess because they don't want to pay the rights to print the character. It's expensive, so, unfortunately for us. Any other questions? Thank you very much for coming. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Pete, uh, Keith and Spike for doing the panel, for videoing and then sending it to us so that we can do a podcast and so we can share it with a lot of Phantom fans from around the world. Um, so a huge shout out to them. Thank you for that. Uh, a huge shout out to all our Phantom uh, Patreon supporters. Um, you know who you are. There's a... There's a few of you that support us with your hard-earned cash. We appreciate that because it makes our life easier. Uh, and then what we do is we have prizes and, you know, but that's all the fun stuff. But really, the Patreon actually pays for the bills. So that way, our wives don't get, you know, don't get angry at us for spending all the money on Phantoming, but also on Chronicle Chamber, the bills as well. So, huge shout out to all the Patreon supporters for uh, helping us pay the bills, which includes things like uh, uh, hosting the website, the domain name, um, uh, the software that we use to edit uh, video, edit um, audio, but also to host the videos, like with Zoom, is 
which is the program we use. That all costs money, uh, and it costs a fair bit of money. Uh, we appreciate that. We appreciate what the Patreons do, which help us. Um, if you like what you see, uh, you can find us on chroniclechamber.com. Uh, on there is all our articles, all our podcasts, uh, links to our social media, links to the Phantom Preservation Project, which is uh, which is a cool project that we've been doing for a couple of years, and there's tons of stuff in there. The list is like ten pages long. We've got it all itemised and stuff like that, and it's it's a cool project. It's a time consuming project, but what basically we're trying to do is digitise content so it doesn't get lost. Uh, there will be some plenty of cool little articles from the 50s, 60s, 40s, and all that period of time, which no one's got. It hasn't been scanned, no one's got it in their collection, so it's lost. So basically what we're trying to do is prevent that so the next generation will have access to what's happening now. Alright, so if you want to email us, if you basically are going to conventions um, and you're getting recordings from panels that are phantom related or you're talking to phantom fans and you think, oh, this would be cool to go on a podcast, basically get in touch with us, best way, chroniclechamber at gmail.com. Uh, or you can contact us for, or follow us on social media if that's your poison. Facebook, which is just search for chroniclechamber.com. Uh, we're also administrators of the Phantom Collector Group, which is a pretty cool group as well. Uh, if you're a Twitter or a tweeter, at uh, chroniclecheat underscore tweet. Uh, or if you're a grammar or an insta or an instagrammer, at uh, chroniclechamber. Basically, if you like our podcasts, um, you can get access to all our podcasts via uh, iTunes, or if you're an Android user, there's plenty of them. Uh, you can even get us on Spotify as well, so um, yeah, there's no excuse not to be able to listen to us while you're driving to work, while you're having dinner with the in-laws and you can't be bothered listening to the mother-in-law, we've got you covered. So, a huge shout out again to Pete, Keith and Spike for uh, recording that panel for their time, for graciously allowing graciously allowing us to use that um a huge shout out to you guys we appreciate it hope you guys appreciate it if you are listening to this give them a huge shout out uh and to say thank you as well um but until next time happy phantoming 500 years ago he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck and upon the skull of the man who killed his dad he said i'm mad i must eradicate piracy injustice and cruelty and all my sons will follow me so evil doers will believe that this man cannot die the phantom the ghost who walks the phantom enemies beware the phantom's always there but you won't find the phantom he finds